Hello, and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, a big thanks to those of you who have chosen to support this podcast by subscribing to our Patreon. That link will be in the show notes if anybody else would like to subscribe. It is so vital, so encouraging, so inspiring, and so humbling to have your support. Thank you so much. We have some incredible sponsors I'd love to tell you about. Oom is a company that is making it possible for the wine industry to begin reusing glass bottles. Go to oom.earth. That stands for Our Only Mission is Earth. Go to oom.earth and let them know you've heard about them here. Also, Catavino Tours is a sponsor, and they offer luxury wine and food tours in Portugal and Spain. And you can support this podcast by checking them out and, and having a fantastic time on a tour with them by going to catavinotours, with an S, dot com slash O-W-P. And Vermont Vineyards is a family-run business owned and operated out of small-town Vermont. They design and install vineyards of all shapes and sizes, and they aim to reduce the stigmas attached to hybrid grape varieties in New England wine regions. Check them out at vtvineyardswithans.com slash O-W-P, all lowercase. That's vtvineyards.com slash O-W-P. Now, this is a winemaker's episode, and I just realized, to my satisfaction, that the vast majority of this podcast focuses on the farming of wine. Since I'm at around 10% in the cellar and 90% in the vineyard in terms of my focus, I tried to make up for lost cellar time with this episode. My guest is Clark Smith. Clark has been making and studying wine since the 1970s. He's had a huge influence on the wine world through his wine consulting business, and in 2013, he published the book, Postmodern Winemaking. Ten years later, that book is still groundbreaking. Clark knows more than you do about the chemistry of winemaking. In addition to that, he'll tell you he has a bit of an ego. He may say some things that rub you the wrong way. He may say some things that you find hard to believe. He may say some things that contradict everything you know about wine. But he may also say some things that enlighten you and revolutionize your winemaking. There really isn't a way to pigeonhole him. Clark is candid, transparent, a bit of a pot stirrer, and in pursuit of the most soulful wine he can make. In the past, he's been the whipping boy for the natural wine press, partly for his embrace of new technologies and partly for his willingness to confront hype with science. Depending on your convictions, you can fault him or thank him for introducing reverse osmosis and microoxygenation to American winemaking but you cannot fault him for concealing his use of techniques or technologies in his winemaking, which is more than I can say for some who claim to make natural wine. You may disagree with him, but make sure you understand him before you dismiss him. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, including what wine really is, the googeness of wine, minerality comes from living soil, why Briggs has nothing to do with ripeness and how determining ripeness takes a personal relationship with a vineyard. Why watering must back increases a wine's aromatic and color intensity. Why he makes his best wines without sulfites and how everything that's common knowledge about sulfites in wine is wrong. Why Britannomyces is a hospital disease in winemaking and why a living wine with good structure beats it. We talk about a very interesting little movie called Wine Diamonds, at least he references it, and we talk about white winemaking, sweet winemaking, and much more. Buckle in, maybe grab a notepad, and enjoy. 
Oh, and some of the things that Clark references, his presentation on the four different kinds of white wine making, his presentation on oxygenation in wine, will be available with his permission at organicwinepodcast.com on his episode page. So check it out there for more information and the full presentation which he covers in this episode. Clark, welcome. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. It's a privilege, Adam. So could... You know, I have mentioned to a couple of people that I will be talking to you and universally they, well, these were winemakers or people in wine. They've all universally been aware of your book, Postmodern Winemaking. Um, I just spoke to somebody who said, when I mentioned I would be talking to you, said, I read it every year before harvest. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool. and, yeah. And uh, so, you know, that came out in 2013. And yet I, I think we're still having the same conversations that you were having then were, you know, they're, they're the same debates with the same level of misinformation are still being had. Um, yeah, before we jump weird. I, uh, you know, when I published the book in 2013, I thought that five years later, it would be just common knowledge and not really interesting anymore. <laughs> right, um, right. I really thought people would catch on and go, oh, okay. Well, that makes so sense. And so and then, you're... but now my, actually the sales of my book are, are stronger than ever. And the conversation is finally kind of getting underway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope I can help with that. I mean, it sounds like you're a, an optimist uh, based on your assumptions about how people's thoughts would change quickly <laughs> in response to your book. Um, but can you talk a little bit about your history in wine, like how you got into it and, and what it's meant in your life, where, where it's taken you? Well, I sort of started life as an MIT dropout in uh, <laughs> 1971. Uh, it was a wonderful time. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, the uh, heads of the departments teach all the freshman classes at MIT. So I got to have, you know, Francis Crick of the Double Helix taught me molecular biology and Noam Chomsky taught me linguistics. And there were like 12 of these guys. And so, and plus I was doing a lot of uh, folk music. And so I had like 13 careers to choose from. And then I got to the uh, junior year and they made me choose one. So I left (laughs) (laughs) because I just, I didn't know. I wanted to yeah. take some time off and, and think about it. Wandered out to California, got a job in a liquor store, and suddenly I kind of found my bliss. I was looking for something that was new, where there was a lot of discovery yet to happen. So, you know, I wasn't really interested in working out the periodic table, which, you know, been around for 100 years. I, w- I wanted to do something <laughs> new, and particularly that, that merged science and art, what it is, what's the nature of the physical world and how does that affect what it is to be human? Mm. And once I understood what was going on in, in wine, I thought, Oh, okay. I got to do this. So I worked retail for five years at that time, believe it or not, there were only 250 wineries in the country. uh, And, I met all the winemakers in the United States, 250 winemakers. It didn't take very, it wasn't very hard to do over the course of five years. 
Now there's 12,000 wineries, so it's impossible yeah. to meet them all. But the other thing that was really neat about the wine industry back then is that it, people would, from other industries, would marvel at how open we were and, and how we were exchanging information all over the place. And that's because we didn't know anything. <laughs> and, I, you know, half the wines on the shelf would be considered unmerchantable today. So we needed <laughs> to talk to each other. And unfortunately, for a number of reasons, that uh, openness has disappeared in the world. Yeah. And now uh, it's pretty shut down. But, but that really attracted me. And I was able to make an impact partly because most of the people that got into the industry were not innovators. They, they didn't want to do something new. They wanted to do something old. And so, for example, when I got my patents uh, on uh, alcohol adjustment and VA removal with reverse osmosis, that patent was, there were 150 patents in the U.S. Patent Office since 1880. So about one a year, and uh, it, it was you mean ridiculous. about wine. About one a year, which I mean, there's been 150 patents in in uh, in San Jose since breakfast, because <laughs> 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 that's what everybody wow. was up to. But they weren't, and so that allowed me to come Are you in and do total, something. or just in the area of wine. There were that many patents. Uh, just in the area of wine. Okay. Whew. I was like, man. Yeah. No, but. About one one a year. Wild. So, well, I I also, I mean, it sounds like, uh, I, I want to ask you how wine grabbed your attention. But I by doing that, I want to, I, I just want to say that the philosophy, your winemaking philosophy on the winesmith.com is the practical art of connecting the human soul to the soul of a place by rendering its grapes into liquid music. And for somebody who sounds like you came from a hardcore science background uh, and, and have, you know, approached things pretty scientifically, you know, and technologically, that sounds like a pretty soulful and, uh, you know, deeper connection to wine. Can you explain that disparity? Well, as I said, I had always been looking for something that was science in service to art. Hmm. Uh, And, and I, I think I found that. Um, you got to remember, I, I'm a musician too. So, mm. um, and actually, one of my books is the practical art of pairing wine and music. It's uh, incredibly uh, uh, startling, just mm. how much I can make you love or hate anything with my iPod. Right, right. I've heard so, about these experiments. Sounds fun. yeah. So, anyway, w- what happened to me is I. Uh, I remained a, a dropout for nine years. I was I spent five of them working in uh, in, in retail. So uh, at that time, there were only about a thousand wines being made in the United States, and we I worked at a place called Jackson's Wine and Spirits, and uh, and we had another thousand uh, from Europe, and those were the wines we really studied. Uh, nobody really knew what they were doing in, say, Cabernet, uh, but the Bordelais sure did, and our Pinots were nowhere near as good as the uh, Burgundies. So 
you know, those, those were the wines that we studied and uh, put together tasting groups and tasted all the time. Uh, and so that's how I, I cut my teeth. Mm. And then, uh, then I finally, in 1980, went to Davis, finished up the uh, bachelor's and took all the master's degree programs, but I never actually published my thesis because I got <laughs> snapped up by uh, some local farmers, the Jagir family, and uh, uh, we started R.H. Phillips in 1982. Well, no, 1983. Uh, and we were 3,000 cases and about $2 million in debt. And, <laughs> and then, uh, so I got a chunk of the company and we took it to 300,000 cases and sold it for a wow. nice chunk of change. Uh, nice. But that's that's when I was much more interested in doing something practical than doing something academic where, you know, it's really frustrating in, in university when you, you give out these assignments to the students and it's kind of a relentless game of fetch the stick uh, <laughs> with, with no real value being created. Mm. Uh, and so I was much more interested in, in the uh, private sector. Yeah. Uh, so I did that at Phillips for seven years, and then I hung out my shingle as a consultant in 1990, and so I guess I've been doing that for, what is it, 33 years. Yeah, uh, um, I know. it's And as it, as it turned out, I mean, history would conspire to put you at this place and time where... You developed uh, and worked with some some of the techniques and technologies that are really like define modern winemaking or postmodern winemaking, I should say. Um, and and some some crit criticism came your way. I mean, you I, I, you know just by following your bliss and follow, you know trying to make better and better wine, uh, I think you just found yourself at the center of things that you didn't even realize that you're. At the center of sort of cultural wars that had nothing to do with winemaking. it's not exactly right. I'm from Jersey. Okay, you know, I like right. to pick a fight. Uh, <laughs> okay, I, good. All right, I, yeah. I like to tell the inconvenient truth. All right, all right, and that's kind of not the way Californians are. <laughs> kind of <laughs> mellow out, and, uh, and so I was, I was able. It was great privilege, really, to be able to be in the middle of. Uh, the wine technology revolution and try to marry it with this, you know, artistic need that all winemakers have, mm -hmm. you, you know, there's, uh, I, I always tell, I have about 120 wine winery clients. We're doing startups all the time. And none of these people, I'm talking about the entire industry. There's nobody in it for the money. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Amen. I, I, ne <laughs> never be a winemaker or a jazz musician unless you have to. <laughs> and, and you know, so I love these people, and I I yeah. think they're getting getting a rotten deal. It's our own fault because we aren't explaining to people what's going on. But uh, yeah. that honesty and openness has kind of inadvertently gone away because we're chicken shit. To, to tell people what we do and why we do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I see this too. So, I, I mean, I think some of the, well, I, I would say some of your controversy wasn't with uh, Californians. It was with uh, New Yorkers, if I'm not mistaken. Like, uh, well, at least 
another, you know, Alice firing, for example. Um, I mean, I'm sure you have a decent re- relationship, but it sounds like you, you came under her crit- criticism to a certain extent. Um, but My relationship with Alice is, is interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, I really don't think, I think Alice is pretty much a self promoter uh, mm. and doesn't care a whole lot about, you know, intellectual debate about what's really going on. But I will say uh, I had a really interesting conversation with her. Uh, I was showing her, uh, we, we have this, this wine we made in Napa Valley College called, called Faux Chablis. Uh, it's 100% Chardonnay, uh, no malolactic. And we, the, the secret to Chablis, people think that you pick Chablis underripe, and that's not true. In if you go to Chablis, you're going to see that those are yellow clusters, that the, mm. and, and the seeds are brown. And um, and when we do that in California, because our air is too dry, that means we're talking about like fourteen eight alcohol, right? And the wines are hot and bitter, so we use reverse osmosis, uh, which creates a filtrate. We call it a permeate. It has alcohol in it. We can distill that alcohol out, put the water back. That's a very simple invention. It's amazing that nobody had ever thought of it before. Uh, and that allows me to find a balanced sweet spot, uh, usually and that wine is around 12.9%. So I poured Alice the the wine that we had pulled the, pull, pulled the uh, alcohol out, and then I gave her also the original wine before we did that. And she made a really, really interesting comment. She said that the, uh, and it's really true, that the alcohol-adjusted wine had more terroir character. You could get the minerality. We were dealing with a living soil there where we, we just let the weeds go there at Napa College. And, uh, and, and, you know, Steve Krebs and I just wanted to make this. We want to show people at Napa that you don't have to make a big ball buster, that you can make an elegant wine that tasted like real French Chardonnay. Uh, but part of that was to get the minerality from the living soil and fostering the hypogeus fungi and all that. And that sort of, that worked really well, but it, could be hidden under all the alcohol, the bitterness, and uh, you couldn't taste the minerality in the finish. And, and so, so she said, well, you got a lot more terroir characteristic in the altered wine, but the unaltered wine is more authentic. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was an interesting thing to say. Uh, yeah. And so that's kind of the gimme spots on my apples kind of, you know, if if that's the way the 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 vineyard really is, and that's what it's giving you, then I want to taste. I want that to be presented. Right now, the reason this is bullshit <laughs> is she's just condemned the entire vineyard of France <laughs> because in France you get a lot of rain and your bricks are low, and you make wines that are thin and salty. And so for 200 years, we've been following Dr. Shopdahl's advice and uh, adding sugar. 
note that this never appears on a label, but you know, even in a good year, you're going to add 10 grams <coughs> per liter. And in a bad year, you'll add 20. And that goes for all the first growths and everything else. And, and that's, that's because the terroir is, so, it's so much more complex uh, than just what the bricks is. Bricks really has nothing to do with ripeness. It only has to do with how much alcohol you have. And so there's a point of balance, uh, maybe maybe several, uh, but in between, the wines don't taste very good. So uh, you're you're trying to combine uh, the soil type and the temperature and the wind and the uh, the light exposure of the canopy and uh, soil fertility and many other factors uh, like altitude and longitude. Uh, and none of that, uh, that's just too much to manage and also to get the alcohol to be in a sweet spot. It's kind of like if you were, you were farming soup and you wanted the salt to be exactly right. Well, nobody does that. Uh, well, it also, to me, it's like to to make the perfect wine, that means there's like two places in the world where you can do that. You know what I mean? Like that's the other side of it. Like, and, and that's on a good year. You know what I mean? Like, the, does that ring true to you as well? Yeah. And why would you, what, what, what is evil about alcohol adjustment? Um, <laughs> well, what makes better wine and you're able to, as I said, dial it into a sweet spot. Um, your chances of being in a sweet spot without adjustment are about one in six. <laughs> right. And well, here's my other, I, I have multiple questions, but while we're, while you mentioned that, why would you adjust with uh, RO instead of water to, to decrease alcohol? Well, we do use water. Right. I mean, but yeah. if you were, if you had your druthers and wh what would you choose and why? Well, when the fruit comes in, uh, we're, the, the type of ripeness that I'm looking for is usually going to be around 24 to 25 bricks. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I'm lucky, 23, five, uh, but that's going to result in more alcohol than I want. And so I'm going to go ahead and water that basically replace the water that evaporated from the grape and take it right. down to about 23, five. But that doesn't mean it's going to be on a sweet spot. Right. So, uh, so, so I really kind of do a combination of both. Okay. And, and sometimes I'll just add a little alcohol back. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll try a yeah. whole, we'll look at, at tenths of a percent of alcohol and we'll find where the wine sings. Hmm. So, so, you know, water is, 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 is that big knob <laughs> right? and, uh, and uh, technology is the fine tuning. Huh. That's really, yeah, that's, that's remarkable. Do you sonye when you add water or not? Because uh, a lot of people do that. Um, yeah. Uh, the problem in California with sonye is that if you're making a red wine and you pull the juice off, uh, then it's going to be really high alcohol. And I love dry rosé, uh, especially the Provençal style. But in California, if you don't water like a lot, then that uh, 
that ripe Senye juice will be over 14% alcohol and it'll taste awful. Right. Right. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll actually water down to about uh, uh, 21.5 and end up with wines in the, in the, in the 12s. And I think that yeah. Makes, yeah. makes much better, uh, much better rosé and more of it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Free wine. Um, <laughs> turning water into wine. All right. <laughs> so we were talking about uh, watering back. Yeah, I, I I might sound cavalier about these large water additions. I have a really hard time persuading my clients to get their final alcohols under fourteen, uh, <laughs> which means diluting to twenty three bricks. And right. uh, you know they they get kind of crazy when I ask them to add a bunch of water, uh, and that's because they don't understand colloid chemistry. They're afraid that they'll dilute the flavor and density, but actually the opposite is true. Anthocyanin pigments and other flavor components are only sparingly soluble in wine. They, all, you, all you can get is a light rosé, and they can only be extracted into copigmentation colloids. Now, a copigmentation colloid is a kind of a coagulation of phenolic uh, ring structures driven together by water activity. So there, it's like a it, it's like a, a corral for 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 color and flavor uh, phenolic rings. And these colloids they're dependent on high water activity. At high alcohol, they don't exist at all. Oh, uh, and at lower alcohol, the wines actually become denser and more highly extracted. <laughs> you, I know you have to, I got to get them to trust me. And usually <laughs> the first year they don't, they add about half as much water and then they end up with wines with 15% alcohol that are kind of terrible. And <laughs> well, that's because you didn't do what I told you. Uh, now the other aspect of this is that the aromatics, uh, Esters, terpenes, thiols, in both red and white wines, they're what we call apolar. So they hate water. Hmm. And what that means is that at low alcohol, which is to say high water activity, they're pushed up into the gas phase. So we're saying we're increasing the aromatics, and also they're not masked by alcohol. So, uh. for example... German Rieslings at 8% are some of the most aromatic wines in the world. Right. That's fascinating. And, I mean, I'm just throwing out a random question, but mm -hmm. you're when you're watering back, you're also acidulating the water, right? Oh, no. <laughs> this is the other thing people don't understand. That's a great question. You can take a wine and add tenfold its volume in, uh, in, in, in uh, water distilled water and the ph doesn't change what <laughs> well the ta obviously you know is right. going to be diluted but ph is the balance of the all the acids in their conjugate bases it's the ratio of the two and when you dilute it doesn't change so <laughs> no you don't acidulate the water basically the water has no buffer capacity and so when you add it, it doesn't change the pH. Wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, I mean, if you acidulate, which I know 
I mean, that's standard practice when you water back, right? Oh, I'm not saying we don't. Well, they're unrelated. Okay. Uh, No, but I mean, yeah, like I guess what I was thinking is you'd add, you know, 3.5 grams per liter or something or 5.5 grams per liter to get to, you know, a sort of a TA, like thinking of it from a TA standpoint to what, you know, per volume of water that you would add back to keep a balance in the flavor of the finished wine. I mean, this that's pretty standard practice that I've heard of, right? Like, no, I and that's that's a huge acid add. Uh, we never add that much. Uh, uh, it's it's a little bit complicated to explain, but basically, you want all of your juices to start at about pH three point four five. Yeah. Uh, so if it's a white wine, it, it, the chemistry of tartaric acid is very strange. Uh, you would think when uh, you would you would think when you acidify you lower the pH and raise the TA, uh, and that's true. But with whites, if anything you're below pH three point six, and the uh, potassium bitartrate comes out, like mm-hmm. cold stabilization or just during right. fermentation, the the uh, TA goes down which makes sense, but the pH also goes down. <laughs> uh, yeah, you have to look at the equilibrium chemistry to understand why that's true. Yeah, I've heard about this, yeah. What you want to do is is drift into the ideal zone for white wine making, which for non-malolactic wines like Sauvignon Blanc is, is uh, down around th- 3.2, 3.25, and for... Uh, richer, rounder wines like Chardonnays with malolactic, you want to be around 3.4. So you have this ideal zone for whites. Right. With reds, you start at 3.5. Now I'm talking about at the moment of crush. And most of the time, winemakers don't even read their pHs and bricks until a 24-hour soak. So, right. so but, but let's let's pretend you knew what the bricks was and the ph was at three uh at the moment of crush so 3.45 skin contact that you do in all reds is going to give you a a rise of about 0.2 so now instead of 3.45 you're at 3.65 and then the malolactic depending on how much malic acid you have will give you another uh rise from uh, between 0.1 and 0.2. Right. So uh, that means that you just, you, you float into this zone, which I think is ideal. Uh, you want your light reds like Pinot Noir to be at about 3.7. And you want your big reds like Cabernet to be at about 3.8, 3.85 for the really tannic ones. Uh-huh. And there's, there's another little nuance here, which is if you have a big cab and it's going to age for several years, at least two years in barrel, then you actually want to start at about 3.9 or 3.95 because the SO2 you're adding during uh, aging is going to oxidize to sulfuric acid and that will <laughs> raise the ta and low lower the ph so you drift into this 3.85 
pH with as low a TA as you can get. Uh, you really want your TAs to be around five or maybe less because then you have less salivation coming in from, you know, the stimulation by, by the TA and less protein in the saliva means a softer wine uh, that's, that's not as harsh. And, and crude as it would be at a higher t that's not a problem with pinot noir because there's hardly any tan in there anyway so it's all right for the ta to be up in the sixes uh with a ph around three seven right huh it's actually amazing kind of a beautiful dance that yeah. the wine chemistry just does all on its own if you start yeah. at 2.45 so yeah. that's an easy thing to remember. The, the the justification for it and how it all folds out, you know, it takes me about about a half a day to explain that in a class. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can get that. Wine making fundamentals made easy. <laughs> so, but the, the bottom line for for this in in terms of adding water, it actually yeah. it actually increases the density, the the sort of color and aromatics. Of the wine, of a red yeah. wine. Yep, that's right. <laughs> um, now, you brought up adding SO2 in barrel for long aging, but you also talk about how that might not be as necessary as people think it is. There's a lot of myths around that. And that's right. I'll definitely link to that article that you wrote for Winemaker Magazine, but yeah, do you want to uh, cover uh, some of... A, a little-known article by Alain uh, 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 Funel... Uh, in uh, she's a professor in, at the University of Bordeaux, and she uh, did this experiment that proved that the anthocyanin pigments that bind the SO2, there really isn't any free SO2 in red wine. Uh, the, when you measure it, what you're really doing is uh, you're really measuring also those those uh, the bisulfite that's bound to pigments because it's in rapid equilibrium with the free. And so when you, when you, when you titrate the free, you get that stuff too, but it's not effective against acetobacter. And that's hardly anybody knows that. So what that's really crazy. keeps your wine from, from turning to vinegar is its reductive strength, its ability, its antioxidative power. That's where does you, that come from? It comes from not, not picking the grapes when they're overripe. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this this is what true phenolic ripeness really really is, and uh, y you know a young winemaker will try to avoid that because when the wine has high reductive strength, uh, you know, sort of a strong immune system, then it 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 closes up and uh, and and can and the tannins can be hard and it can the fruit can be suppressed when the wine is young. Uh, right. You know, when it gets older, then the wine will open up. But, you know, these wines can even make H2S. And so if you let right. them hang forever, then they taste great <laughs> when they're a year old. And then after two or three years, they just fall apart. Yeah, I've I've had that experience that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the tasting the room california wine experience yeah you you love it in the tasting room and you take like it home and open it dollars for a napa cap right <laughs> and it's that uh i definitely have had that where you're like you taste it in the tasting room you love it and then when you open it at home you're like this is a different wine entirely and it's nowhere near as good kind of thing yeah um now so when like essentially it sounds like you don't really if if you're picking 
you know, whole well-grown grapes uh, that are not overripe, that are optimally ripe, but not like damaged or overripe, you don't really need sulfur for for a long time. I mean, do you advocate using sulfur at all if, if well, everything else is in, I, in balance? I make I make sulfite-free wine. Sulfite. I should say sulfite instead of sulfur. Sorry, you have, right. I know that. Sorry. Yeah, that's a bugaboo, but uh, I won't scold you. Um, <laughs> no, I'll scold myself so you don't have but, to. But, you know, the guys at Davis will tell you that without SO2, uh, you know, the wine has to be kept cold all the time. It has to be drunk within a year of vintage. And that's just not true. My best wines are the ones that I age without any SO2 for five or six years in old barrels. And then when I, even then when I bottle them, like my 2014 is still pretty reductive and it tastes better when it's been decanted and left open for several days. But they, these are wines that are extraordinarily profound. Right. And you're not adding... Let me say that again. Uh, These are wines that are extraordinarily profound (laughs) and you're not adding anything at bottling either like you don't feel like this is this is the thing that you hear all the time like i don't add sulfites but i just add a little at at bottling yeah which is you know what do you want to do kill off the microbiome that's going to give you your uh bottle bouquet it's kind of crazy right um huh that's gonna say oh yeah uh i don't really advocate making sulfite free wine unless you really know what you're doing so i Mm. I class called advanced red wine making and it addresses all of these issues of structure importance of uh, growing for the building blocks and then how to create that structure enological oxygen and the management of a microbial equilibrium in the cellar rather than just killing everything uh, and trying to avoid uh, sterile filtration at bottling, all this stuff. You got to have all of that under your belt before you're ready to make sulfite-free wine. I'm talking about reds. I don't even know how to make (laughs) sulfite-free whites, but uh, Paul Fry is pretty good at it, but he just avoids oxygen altogether. And that's not what I encourage oxygen, but, uh, Anyway, I, the way I say it is, it is possible to climb Mount Everest without an oxygen mask, but only only masters and morons <laughs> attempt it. Uh, and for everybody else, you you have to you have to learn all of these pieces before you can really make great sulfite free wine. Mm, I like that. Um... Well, I mean, I'm sorry, we went into some details there. I guess really what I wanted to get at was, you know, I think your approach is honesty and openness and you advocate for that. And I I personally really appreciate that regardless of, you know, whatever you're doing, at least stand behind it, you know, like, like don't lie about it if it and i feel like we have built this culture at least in the natural wine culture that i've seen that incentivizes dishonesty you know incentivizes uh sins of omission like you know you just don't talk about the things that you do that would scare some people you know or would offend some people sounds like a bad marriage doesn't it <laughs> you know, it where, say the husband is look you know looking at some other gal and uh you know, in a good marriage, you 
you know, there's there's openness and honesty and you know i got these hormones what am i supposed to do honey uh uh, right. uh but it, it, there's a there's kind of a history of this i i think it's really our own fault that we've made some bad choices as winemakers but let's put the whole thing in historical context yeah so i mean we're 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 talking as i said nobody's in it for the money and uh you know, everybody wants what the natural wine movement wants. You know, no, nobody wants to poison anybody. And, uh, but we do want to make good wine too. Uh, so, all right. So, uh, you could argue that it's inauthentic or unnatural to add water to must, but (laughs) excuse me, I'm going to make better wine and that's what I'm going to do if need be. And it's really just replacing the water of evaporate. Um, Okay, so well, and- really, um, there is no such thing as traditional winemaking anywhere in the world anymore. Right, right. And, and that's because who, who doesn't want electric lights in their cellar? <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, if you took a, a winemaker from any time period of history before 1900 <clears throat> and you took them to a winery today, they they wouldn't recognize they're in a winery. Right. So we've got, we've got electric lights, stainless steel, electric pumps, refrigeration, plastics, all these things have happened. They weren't noticed. You would go to a winery, let's say in 1970s, see all these things and not be horrified (laughs) uh, because you have them all in your kitchen. Right. And it won't be long before people have enough ROs underneath their sink that that won't seem weird either. But at that time, we got into, let's say, in the 80s, and we were doing reverse osmosis and enological oxygen and many other innovations that we did not explain. Why? Well, partly, most winemakers didn't understand how they worked anyway. They just knew the result. Uh, and I think we made a mistake there. Uh, it's sort of the opposite of the of the way the the top chefs went. You know, Wolfgang Puck would get on TV and he'd say, "You know, I got this. Uh, I got this really ripe brie here, but I want to grate it so I can put it in my puff technology. So I'm gonna I'm gonna freeze it with liquid nitrogen so I can grate it. You want to watch?" <laughs> There he is on TV, you know, pouring liquid nitrogen over this ripe brie. And we should have been doing that, too, because the things were these new technological innovations are really cool. And uh, and we should be bragging about them. And if we're not willing <laughs> to brag about them, then we shouldn't do them. Right. That's not the road we took. Um, and so I don't think I don't well, think that uh, that the wine writers knew why they were being lied to. <laughs> uh, right. 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 But they could tell there was something that wasn't right. And so they started making shit up. <laughs> right. What is it these guys are embarrassed about to tell me? Uh, and so it got to the point where this just about about 2000 the whole thing exploded. That's when Alice came on the scene and Letty Teague. 
by the way, I, I have all of these articles from that time on, on uh, winecrimes.com. Mm. Um, so that's a, that's a fun place to read about the dark side of wine. And, uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, wine is made in the lab, not the vineyard. Uh, right. Because I wanted, I wanted all those articles to be there so that real journalists could go in and read them and make their own choice about what was really going on. So most people didn't do that. <laughs> they, they just said, oh, yeah, you know, I, what they really say is, I do the minimum. Right. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> Everybody does the minimum to do things cost money. <laughs> but that's kind of what they were saying. And what resulted is, is most winemakers keeping their heads down while a natural wine pundits fire live ammo over their heads. So yeah. now, you know, I'm just begging people to, A, don't do anything that you're ashamed of and don't want to brag about. Uh, and B, you know, tell your stories because they're, kind of fun <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and i think that's the solution to healing this bad marriage is by inviting winemakers to explain their choices and and give them a place where they can feel safe to do that well, uh, and I, enological oxygen is a great example i mean yeah i was, yeah, honestly, I was gonna say just how evil some... can that possibly be yeah. Well, this is the thing. I, I was going to say there is some hypocrisy in, in I think some of the prohibitions or the, you know, these these senses of offense that are taken um, by you know for some of these things because you know as, as I was saying to you, it's like I I know so many natural winemakers who don't blink an eye at using dry ice, and yet you have you know you are a big proponent or I don't know if you're a proponent, but we, we're going to talk about oxygenation and microoxygenation is a technological uh, development in wine that has some real advantages if you choose to use it. Um, at, at least it's a really useful tool, can be a really useful tool. And you're all you're adding is air. Like you're literally just adding air. Yes, it's a technological thing, but how different is that than dry ice and how much technology is required to produce dry ice to blanket your natural wine so that it's protected while you don't inoculate it and it sits there for four days before the fermentation kicks off you know it's like i i think that's just a really weird line to draw in some ways like and i i i draw the line of like well i can't afford the technology and that's kind of wh why i end up <laughs> doing natural wine because you know my my i can only afford peasant winemaking but um if I could afford it, then like for me to be offended by it or, or for me to just be offended by microoxygenation seems really strange. Like it seems like a hypocritical. Um, did, anyway, I ever, we'll, did I ever yeah. send you that article I just wrote for Winemaker Magazine about enological oxygen? Yes, yes. And I'd love to get into that. Um, well, there's, a whole, sure. there's a whole box in there about what you can do if you don't have any money. Right, uh, exactly. You know, yeah. I think the word technology is pretty loaded. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, what What does it mean? What's the difference <laughs> between a cooking technique and a cooking technology? Mm. It's it's just it's just that we don't understand it, and we're sort of afraid of it. <laughs> so, working with 
oxygen for me is is not a technology. It's a technique. It's something I know right. how to do. Right. Well, to 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 get into that, let's start with let's start at the beginning. The thing that you have come to under the way that you've come to understand wine. Like what what is wine? Well, uh <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so I, I told you I went to I went to Davis and got these degrees and learned modern enology, uh, which in, it teaches that wine is a chemical solution and and that oxygen is the enemy of wine, which is a a misquote of Emile Pinot at the University of mm-hmm. Bordeaux in the sixties. Uh, so uh, at R. H. Phillips, I was using all this all this modern stuff. And, uh, and then I had the opportunity to work through the uh, Benziger family with uh, Pascal Ribeiro Guillon, who was the uh, director of the University of Bordeaux on a project uh, making a single blend from vineyards all over the world. And he taught me a lot about tannin. We, you know, none of us had ever learned anything about about texture at Davis. It was all the aroma wheel. And so I was right. pretty ignorant. And he, he taught me about the different kinds of tannin. And he taught me a lot about ripeness. And he's the guy that told me, you know, if, if I was growing Cabernet here, I'd let it hang to 27 bricks and then water it down. Because <laughs> <laughs> your grapes aren't ripe when ours are ripe, bricks wise. Right. Right. Uh, well, uh, then, because I had developed this technology, I had a, a company that was founded in 1992 called Vinovation, and we were doing all this RO stuff and some ultrafiltration and a bunch of other technologies, and we became kind of a magnet for other technologies from overseas, particularly France. Right. So... Uh, here I am in a bar at the MGM Grand Hotel in Reno, Nevada, 1997. And this guy named Thierry Lemaire, who was uh, a, a lieutenant of uh, Patrick Ducourneau, who developed Microox. And uh, so he bought me a beer and he told me that he had a technology uh, <laughs> that... Uh, that could stabilize color, increase mouthfeel, uh, balance sulfides, uh, uh, incorporate uh, bread and veg and oak, and uh, all, all my all my daughters would marry doctors. And <laughs> it was outrageous, <laughs> and I didn't believe him for a second. Uh, and, and But a lot of people were curious about this technique. So we agreed to take it on because nobody else would. Uh, and I put this thing on the website that said, we're doing trials. Uh, you know, any winery that wants to sign up, we end up with 12 wineries. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll study this. It sounds like horseshit to us, but <laughs> let's wait and see. And then... Two years later, I took that down. Like I said, strangely enough, this really works. And all I had to do was exactly the opposite of everything I'd been taught and believed. <laughs> so uh, 
Yeah, it, it, it's really a powerful technique. And then added to that were a bunch of other enological oxygen. Uh, one of them that you do when you have high tannin uh, grape juice, uh, principally the uh, aromatic varieties like muscat and riesling, yeah, uh, and it's and it's called uh, hyperoxidation, where you brown the juice. You don't add SO two, and the juice turns into mud. But then it precipitates out, and you end up with a wine that's lighter and brighter and cleaner uh, than the control. And uh, that was kind of mind-blowing. The first time you do it, you want to kill yourself, you know? (laughs) Very scary. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But but it really works. And then uh, then you have macro-oxygenation, which is uh, adding oxygen in the middle of fermentation. It does not affect the tannins. It just uh, feeds the yeast. And you usually add some some, uh, nutrients at the same time. Uh, and this is to prevent stuck fermentations and prevent the uh, formation of sulfides and, and all that stuff. Okay. So then at the moment of dryness, you can come in, let's say it's a nap <coughs> uh, uh, Cabernet, and you're going to be giving it, uh, this is microox. You want to you wanna feed the wine at a rate that is slower than the wine can react up. And believe it or not, at that point, a Cabernet will will absorb between sixty and eighty times what a barrel can give it. Wow! And and it results in in structure and color stabilization, and uh, you just make these rich, dense wines that age for a long time. That's phase one. Once you add SO two, people don't realize this, but SO two inhibits the wine's natural immune system considerably. And right. so that very same wine that was taking 60 now will only take five. And it's because <laughs> SO2, unlike what everybody thinks, is not an antioxidant. And in fact, it, it inhibits the wine's natural immune system, particularly in reds. Uh, huh. So I have to get more into that, but I don't want to break your train of thought. Well, I'll have to really send you the article uh, I uh, who did I write that for? Um, I think that was Winemaker Magazine also. That's a heck of a good rag. It's not for winemakers. It's for home winemakers. Right. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, there's... Where did I send that? Uh, uh, so, you, it's just kind of, you know, everything you, everything you know about uh, SO2 uh, just ain't so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, then phase three is, you know, the problem with barrels is if they're not really old, and I don't own any barrels that are less than 20 years old, but if you have a barrel that's, say, three, four, five years old, it doesn't have any flavor, any positives to it, but it does have a whole lot of green, pithy tannins that, uh, uh, you know, so when the wine is ready to bottle, Except that it has this this harsh, harsh pithy uh, uh, wood tannin, then you'll take it out of barrel and run it at a very low rate, usually less than one milligram per liter, 
and uh, just give it a tan and haircut. Huh. And then finally, there's cliquage, uh, which is what you do when uh, <coughs> you're expecting, uh, you know, Parker or somebody like that to be visiting the winery, and you want to push the wine ahead. You, you want to open it up uh, because a healthy wine will be closed and maybe even making little sulfides. So if you give it a little blast of oxygen, then, uh, then it'll open up at least for a while. You might do that the week before, you know, the great man comes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so is that, would that, uh, would that be like a splashy rack essentially? Yes. Got it. Except okay. it's easier. Oh. Uh, because you don't have to move the wine. You just, oh. you just put the diffuser in the barrel and you hit this remote control and it turns on across the room You've got your your doser that has a solenoid on it. So when you hit the remote, the solenoid goes click, but it's a French solenoid, so it goes click. And that's where the term cliquage comes from. <laughs> See what I mean? Some of this stuff is hilarious. <laughs> so why wouldn't you want to brag about that? <laughs> uh, well, now... Where? Uh, thank you for for doing this. I, wait, have we gotten through enological enological oxidation or oxygenation? <laughs> um, yeah, that's which is that's, that's that's the short course. Yeah. I, I, I would say that phase one microox in particular is very tricky. You're you're you know half of the benefit of it is that you're just you're just looking at the wine three times a week and making choices about where you want to go with it. So uh, you can't, it's, it's, you're sort of making a tannin souffle and the oxygen is the wire whisk and you have to separate the, the leaves from the, from the clear wine, which is kind of like separating eggs to make a souffle where you start by making a meringue. And then after you've, built that structure you bring the 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 yolks back to coat the structure and add fatness so that's that's exactly the same as uh how you make a tannin souffle to make a rich light structure that has the properties of aromatic integration and uh, uh you know soulful resonance and uh, graceful longevity uh, mm. and you can't you know, somebody has to teach you. <laughs> somebody has to show right. up. You got to pay a consultant or another winemaker that knows how to do it to show you how to do it. And it takes about three vintages before you're you're able to do just about everything. So huh. you'll you'll start with one diffuser, and by the time you're done, you'll have a diffuser for every every tank in the winery. Huh. Okay. Well, so you just mentioned the tannin souffle, and and when I asked you what is wine. I, now I've heard you talk about this is a, a more fundamental thing. I, I wanted. I can you go back to that, like the fundamental, just like what is the actual liquid of wine, and how is it misunderstood? Like, what, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is I, the, the I, I big, get it. Uh, yeah, I yeah. Mean, um, and so I I contrast modern and postmodern views of wine, uh, 
modern winemaking is based on making good wine. Uh, and when Davis got into the game in the late 60s and early 70s, they did a lot of good to teach people how to make wine that wasn't spoiled. Right. Uh, but in doing so, I think the dogma uh, steered people away from uh, the possibility to make great wine. Uh, so, well, let me ask you a question. What, what is the, uh, is it true or false that the sensory properties of a wine are a consequence of the chemical constituent? So I'm talking about the, the appearance, the color, the uh, aroma, the flavor, and the texture. Are those well, a I, consequence of, of the chemical makeup? Well, I have an unfair advantage from having read your book, so I would say it's false. Most people have two responses. One is, well, true, and the other is, of course it's true. Why are you asking me such a stupid question? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so then I ask another question. Uh, are the uh, sensory properties of a lump of coal, uh, a graphite tennis racket, and a diamond a consequence of their chemical makeup. And by the <laughs> way, they're all 100% carbon. <laughs> right, right. Okay, uh, so if that's obviously not true, what's the difference? <clears throat> what's the missing key? Right, structure. Yeah, and I don't mean structure the way Masters of Wine talk about structure. <clears throat> they'll they'll talk about like the Videl... Uh, uh, triangular graph where you're looking right. at a balance point between uh, astringency and acidity and sucrosity. Right. And where you are in there determines the structure. But that structure is happening in your head. And it <laughs> isn't, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actual gouge that we're building in the wine. So <laughs> wine chemically has a lot more to to do uh, to resembles much more something like chocolate or you could say the difference between a consomme and a lobster bisque the bisque has structure to it it's got gouge in it and or 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 a bernay sauce where you don't smell the the tarragon and the mint and the onion you just get this integrated bernaysi thing <laughs> and uh so that's what we're talking about. And, and I claim that the, the three great sins of modern wine are uh, too much oak, too much pyrazines, and too much bread. Mm -hmm. And I put it to you that none of those things are problems of composition. They're problems mm -hmm. of structure. So what my book is largely about is how to build a structure that integrates all that stuff. And so uh, it, it doesn't occur as defects. Right. And it, it affects, I mean, when you start to understand, I mean, because from the things that you've, I've, I've read of yours, um, I mean, this understanding is much more profound than maybe it sounds like when you think of it as a, a colloidal mixture rather than a chemical solution, if I'm getting that right. Mm -hmm. um, it, it impacts everything. It impacts from how we grow 
the vines and and what we're focusing on in the vineyard. Right. To... I talk about in in uh, in modern enology, you farm for flavors. In in postmodern, you're farming for the building blocks of structure, color, uh, uh, co-pigmentation. Uh, I mean, flavors as well. But but you're really trying to build an integrative structure. How 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 does one do that, and how does that look differently, and how does that relate to minerality, like farming for those things? Well, uh, nobody knows what minerality is, and I'm not talking about the smell of wet stone. I call that petrichor. Right. Uh, I'm talking about the buzz and the finish that is often confused with acidity. Mm. So if you've ever had a corton, they're loaded with this stuff, or a Portuguese port, because the schist in the the soils in in uh, in the Douro impart this characteristic and force the root systems way on down. Uh, uh, Claude Bourguignon told us at Napa College that we could get minerality on any sort of soil if we would knock it off with the pesticides and herbicides, and that really worked. Uh, the downside was that that mineral aspect uh, in California we mostly are looking at volcanic soils decomposed granite. Uh, but of course, in France, you have a lot of limestone. You actually have a whole lot of limestone in the rest of the country. Like uh, mm. you get a wine from Kentucky. That whole state is nothing but a great big slab of limestone and their wines are very minerally. Uh, mm. But California has practically no limestone. So what, uh, what does our minerality taste like? Uh, well, it's, it's the same. It's this, this buzz in the finish. Um, uh, just less pronounced, perhaps? Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't necessarily say so. Okay. Uh, we just we just don't have. I, I I think that there's a there's a an aromatic aspect, sort of like violets, that you see in burgundies so often that we mm. rarely experience in California. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, yeah. So when you're farming for building blocks, how what does that look like in the vineyard? Well, you're other you're than gonna wanna, you're going to want to get in in most cases not Sauvignon Blanc, which isn't really a structured wine, but uh, you you want to make sure there's sunlight on the fruit in the early going because that creates something called cursetin, which is a really good copigmenter. It's uh, it's not like other grapeskin tannins in that it lies flat in the plain just like an anthocyanin and so we can uh, <clears throat> we can extract a whole lot more color and color is kind of the key to structure because it terminates polymerization that's what we want we, we want really short chain oligomers that are maybe five to seven units long if we don't have good color then the those uh, polymerization just continues until the stuff dries out and drops out of the wine. We want to prevent that. So that's why we're jumping on uh, phase one right after fermentation uh, to uh, stabilize the color and create these short oligomers very quickly before we lose them. Gotcha. And so, so you got to, you know, you got to open up the canopy, then uh, you have to be careful about your water in the spring. 
you, you don't want to get to the permanent wilt point, but you also don't want to have full water because that makes more canopy. And um, so there's a, there's a trick to managing soil water content. And then throughout the summer, you're, you're showing up all the time to make sure that vine balance is in place. And then you got you to gotta choose a time when the fruit is ripe, but where it hasn't field oxidized yet. So these, you know, it's probably my fault as much as anybody to give people the ability to uh, pull bricks down. Before me, everybody picked everything at 23.5, if they could get it. And (laughs) now, you know, we sort of enabled them to pick it anytime they wanted to without teaching them what ripeness is. And I Mm. think that, that was a shame. If I had to do it again, I'd, I'd work on, I'd work more on teaching them when what, what is ripeness? What is it? Well, there's a there's a point where the anthocyanins, the, and the by that I mean monomer, comes to a peak and then it drops as the as the color polymerizes on the vine. Uh, we're also you know there's a really good book about this uh, that. Uh, got developed by Jacques Rousseau in, in France. And then uh, a couple of people in Australia, uh, uh, John Whiting and Erica Winner translated it into English. And it's a great book about how you can track the 25 things there are in grapes to look at. Uh, none of which is bricks. Uh, so it's a long story. <laughs> Got it. You yeah, it's, get to know that <laughs> it's a long answer to a short question. Got it. Well, and then yeah. you need to keep records and, and right. say, well, right. how did that go? And uh, is it but, is there yeah. a for the for the lay person without too many tools? Do you have any practical advice for determining ripeness in a more sophisticated way or more inform you know in a just in a better way to actually be ripe versus bricks? Woody Allen. Said that eighty percent of life is just showing up. Yeah, it's very important to get to know the vineyard and the grower, and spend a lot more time than you really want to walking that vineyard and tasting, and as I said, looking at all these parameters like seed color and uh, you know the uh, pulp and so many other things that anybody can can look at. Uh, yeah, and uh, but but really developing a personal relationship with the grower and and that vineyard is that's the most important thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, it takes probably multiple vintages uh, to really yeah. start to see what that site, where that site, and you know, see it over different you know vintage variation in terms of weather and things like that to see where it expresses its right yes. spot. Lovely. Can you give a, a glimpse of some of the other things that get impacted by this understanding of of wine as this, this structural thing <laughs> versus well, a solution? Sure. Um, you, you know, most California winemakers are totally paranoid about Brett. Right. Brett is a hospital disease. the The way to encourage Brett is to kill everything else in the cellar. <laughs> um. And there's another issue there. So I'm a big proponent of of uh, what we call IBM, Integrated Brett Management, 
has to do with uh, taking it easy on your beneficials. Almost everything that lives in your cellar is a beneficial, and they will outcompete Brett for uh, <laughs> resources. So uh, let me tell you a little story. Last uh, about a year and a half ago, we had a we had a tasting of a bunch of old wines from the '60s and '70s, and Rob Davis from Jordan came along, and there was a guy collector in Hawaii that had brought a bottle of the 76, which was his first vintage. And and we tasted it, and it was pristine. It was still nice ruby red, was had nice clean fruit. Now, I knew this wine very well from back when I was retailing. So everybody's going, good job, Rob. You know, that thing held up really well. And I said, well, the only thing is... Uh, I knew this wine very well when I was selling it in 1979, and it tastes exactly the same as it did then. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, my boss really was concerned about Brett, and so we have sterile filtered every bottle that we ever made at Jordan. Right. And But then he says, but let me show you something. So he pulls out a Magnum, and you know, well, that's going to be even worse. Well, hang on. So he pours it around. And what had happened was was Andre Telchev was his uh, mentor at that point. And Andre says, Well, you know, this is the first vintage. We've got a we got a bottle about two hundred commemorative magnum. And Rob said, Well, I, I can't do that. I I don't have the change parts to to put magnums on the line. And he said, Well, hell, let's just get a siphon hose and bottle it right out of the barrel. And he popped that cork, and I'm telling you, I have never had a better Cabernet. Wow. And I'm talking about, I would put that uh, against the first growths in a good year. It was just mind-blowing. And that's, I had always kind of suspected this, but that's when I knew for sure that you will never make great wine if you sterile filter it, because it's microbial. Right. So, to me, the... (coughs) The whole game is is to make a wine with a good structure, achieve a uh, microbial equilibrium where the Brett and the Acetobacter are outcompeted, and then put it in the bottle. Uh, right. And so in this way, see, there are so many ways in which in which I agree with the proponents of natural winemaking. That's certainly one of them. Right. But I don't even think there is such a thing as a natural wine movement. I think it's all kind of made up by people that don't make wine. <laughs> uh, and yeah, there's a whole chapter in my book about this where I where I list the the eight constituencies of the natural wine movement. You got the non-interventionist, you got the environmentalist, uh, the conventionalist. Now, if you're a if you're a conventionalist, you don't like chips. But if you're an environmentalist, you don't like the idea of cutting down barrels, you know, only 25% of the wood in a, in a 200 year old tree is, uh, can make a watertight container, but you can make better wine, uh, with carefully cured and, and, um, toasted chips. So those guys are on completely separate sides of the, of the movement. Uh, right. the, I don't know. It's a 
pretty complex chapter I've got. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I just refreshed myself reading that, and I was, I was, yeah. It's and that look, the whole uh, the whole thing is is all taken from Alice firing. What do you care about? Right. That's funny and, you say uh, that. I, I I work at a natural wine bar, um, and a couple nights a week, and I people have multiple times said to me. <laughs> are all your wines natural? And, and my response has been, well, what do you care about? <laughs> and usually, sadly, they don't have a response to that. You know, They don't know. They just know that they want natural wine. And I think that is testament to what you're saying. Like there's, a, there's, there's press about it. And so they are attracted to it because they think they should be. Um, or because it's it's hot or whatever, and and uh, yet they don't really even know why they care or why it's important to them personally, even. Um, so it's yeah. Well, it's it just, comes back to the you know the the winemakers just haven't been talking, and right. so now we have this sort of myth which we don't have about Wolf, Wolfgang Puck because he's so open. We have this myth that you know everything else is poison. And, and, and that's just bullshit. And, and there are several tenets, like, like uh, the whole idea of, of uh, what the Australians call feral ferments, the uninoculated. I got, I got no problem with that, but I guarantee all you're really doing is, is letting other microbes come in and create complexity. So it's a little bit of a crapshoot, and sometimes you get spoiled wines, but you can you can make nice wines that way, and yep. it's fine with me. But don't kid yourself that that's not a commercial yeast that actually starts and finishes that fermentation. It's been pretty well documented that <clears throat> you know those those commercial yeasts are pretty much everywhere, and uh, you know so so all you're really doing is a prolonged skin contact. Right. Right. Well, there's. Uh... There are, there, are, there are other microbes that get a chance to start things off, don't they? Would they, would they be inhibited once Saccharomyces takes over? Um, yes. When... The general rule, they can't handle high alcohol. Got it. Right. So uh, if you have a slow... That, one of the things that does happen there is you've got a whole lot of yeast and bacteria that produce um, bio, uh, biogenic amines with like histamine and they have lovely names, cadaverine, right. Uh, putrescine. <laughs> right. Uh, and so that methodology, you, you tend to have about 10 times the level of biogenic amines than you would have if you, you did a conventional startup with a commercial yeast. Right. So that's usually the choice I make. But could you, would, would, isn't it true that you would also sacrifice some of the complexity of some of the things that weren't necessarily these, you know, sort of terribly named histamine producers uh, production? I mean, would sure. you lose? Yeah. So you lose some of the other sort of tertiary things that can happen at, uh, in, during that buildup phase. Right. right. And I think a lot depends on, on whether that vineyard has the right microbiome to give you the, that good stuff without, right. without problems. Right. There are, you know, some of the best Zinfandel vineyards in the North Coast, uh, because they're so good, they attract birds and you end up with uh, fruit flies uh, yeah. going after them and, uh, and they have uh, vinegar bacteria on their feet. And right. so often the best wines turn to vinegar. Yeah. Prior to fermentation. Yeah. 
because because they <laughs> come from such delicious grapes that everybody yeah. else wants them. Makes sense, right? right? Yeah. Um, well, and as you mentioned, I mean, you already talked about it, but this this uh, the I, both the structure and this idea of a of a living ecosystem 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 of the wine is what prevents both Brett and the perception of Brett because you have uh, Brett being out competed by all the other microbes in the wine if you're not using sulfur and then you have a structure that even if there is Brett that's producing some breadiness uh, it gets absorbed into that structure I'm not I don't know if absorbed is the right word but maybe you can correct me and say it better than well, I'm saying I, I talk about aromatic integration aromatic integration that's it there you go yeah, and I mean this really that that whole the way that structure works is 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 why Bordeaux is the way it is. Why it isn't squeaky clean. You know, you can take a, a, a do a tasting of a dozen wines, uh, and you know, eleven California Cabernets and one uh, Bordeaux, and people would think the Bordeaux is spoiled. But do eleven Bordeaux and one California Cab. And people will think the cab tastes like Kool-Aid. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah. Let's talk a little about white wine. I would love to. Thanks. <laughs> I kind of came up. I, this didn't. This got left out of my book because I didn't really cook up this idea. Well, so, it's, it's also later. great. It's uh, I, I haven't really talked too much about white wine making, and I I, I think you have such a great. Uh, breakdown of four different ways, at least four different ways of, of white winemaking that are historic. And I have lots of questions about them, but I'd love you to sort of break that down. Yeah. I, I, this is just something I made up, but it seemed to work pretty well. Um, if we go in reverse chronological order, the, right. the latest uh, methodology, uh, you could point to New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, is, is total... Uh, absence of oxygen at any stage. So you're going to, you know, lots of CO2 being thrown around at the, uh, at the crusher and uh, pressing in a CO2 atmosphere. And then, you know, at every stage, just protecting the wine so that it never sees any dissolved oxygen. Uh, the problem with those wines as everybody knows, you know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is just wonderful until it's about a year old. And then <laughs> it has no shelf life. So the second way is uh, this would be Mosul Rieslings, <coughs> where they do hyperoxygenation <coughs> at the uh, juice stage and basically brown out all of the tannins. Now, why do aromatic varieties have lots of tannin? It's because they're so delicious that they attract birds. And so they've all evolved this high tannin structure, just like a, an apple or a banana, uh, where if they get uh, injured, then that injury will turn brown uh, to sort of cauterize the wound. Huh. Uh, that, that tannin is not really good for the wine. It, it uh, when it sees oxygen, it creates hydrogen peroxide, and that gives you this stale uh, kind of aroma. So, uh, so you brown all that out, and even though the juice looks like mud, when you're done with fermentation, you actually have a lighter, brighter wine, which 
you know, Mosul Rieslings can age 30 years. So it's very different than method one, even though post-fermentation, you're kind of protecting it. Right. And then the third way is, and, and, and by the way, those, those are both pretty new inventions. Uh, right. Then the third way, which has been around for a few hundred years, is uh, is to take is to make a wine with as much structure as possible. So you you <coughs> take Chenin Blanc, you press the snot out of it, and then <coughs> you stir leaves every uh, every uh, you know maybe once or twice a week until you coat those tannins, which are initially very harsh, and they finally get to sort of a plump character you might sneak in a little bit of <coughs> viognier or uh some of the vermentino some of the aromatic because those wines will be wonderful when they're a year old and then they'll close up and it might take them five or even more years to develop this aged character and in that in between time it's nice to have uh, a little aromatic juice in there to to uh you know, so so the Make wine it palatable. is like ten percent. Otherwise, the the wine kind of smells like modeling clay for a while. <laughs> but when those wines get to be <clears throat> twenty years old, they're just unbelievably wonderful. Is that like a Chablis? What 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 would fall into that category? Is that what they yeah. do in Chablis? Chablis, yeah. uh, Muscadet sur Lee, mm. uh, Savignier. Got it. Uh, and then you have what is unfortunately referred to as orange wine, <laughs> although it's not made from oranges. I really, the Georgians hate that term. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, you know, skin fermented. And, and in the case of the Georgian wines, they might be on the skins, seeds and stems for six months or more. Yeah. Uh, and then those uh, usually take, the better part of a decade to be ready. Right. Uh, depending yep. on just how far you go. Uh, and the main point I'm trying to make here to winemakers is pick a direction. <laughs> Don't mix them up. So, for example, it's really stupid to make a, a wine that's never seen any oxygen, a method one wine that's only going to be around for a year or two and then stir leaves because stirring <laughs> the leaves suppresses the aroma until years later when no one will buy it, even if it's good. Right. So you, you, don't 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 mix them up. What about where does like uh, Burgundy fall into this into a white wine production? Like, well, how would you characterize it? Usually, sort of method three. Got it. Okay. I mean, I we talked about Chablis, but I just sort of yeah, I was thinking like bone and that that sort of what we think of as the new oak Chardonnays, the Napa Chardonnay style, perhaps. Oh dear. Well, <laughs> well, I'm very critical of most Napa Chardonnay producers because they hate their grapes. They they don't <laughs> do ever mean, want anybody to taste you know Chardonnay in their Chardonnay. <laughs> they want them to taste like breakfast, you know. Right. Lots of toast and butter right um so that's what we were trying to prove with faux chablis is that there's an alternative that napa fruit can really make beautiful wines and we made them in a method three style uh okay. on the other hand the 2005 is the current vintage 
and the '06 <laughs> isn't ready yet. So <laughs> I kind of yeah. own that market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the. That but they really are way. extraordinary wines. Yeah. I mean, if only cash flow wasn't a concern for winemakers, we'd we'd make some really beautiful wine. I yeah, and it wasn't for me. You know, Winesmith. That's good. Yeah, uh, Vinovation was you know a, a service company, and we had lots and lots of wine coming and going, millions and millions of gallons. We we did work for practically every winery in the state, uh, but you know, then we just have couple of barrels of crucible over there in the corner. <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't my day job. So I was able to experiment right. and, and now it's evolved into a highly experimental winery with a bunch of varieties nobody ever heard of, like, like Saint Laurent and, and uh, Petit Monsang and, and Norton. I make wonderful Norton. Oh, really? Yeah. California's oh. only Norton. That's Which amazing. Is funny because Wonderful. you got to get that stuff right. And so, yeah, California is a really good place to grow Norton, but nobody does because we're, yeah, yeah, I, I think California is a great place to grow lots of hybrids, and and it would cut a lot of input in the vineyard uh, down too. A lot of less spraying needed for those hybrids. That's but, right. Yeah, we're yeah. not for vinifera racism. <laughs> exactly right. Um, so about about. Orange or amber wines. I, I mean, one of the mm-hmm. cool things I think I you said in your I think you said this in your book about the 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 Georgians have like 150 different terms for the different hues of amber that can occur. Yes, that's um, right. Yeah, and which is it's yeah. You think that's that whole idea of like Eskimos and snow. Like the more you get to know something, you know, the more you realize it's a complex and detailed thing. Yeah, you um, end up with a rich body of distinctions. Right. And I, I had this uh, epiphany recently, and maybe you can correct me, but, you know, when I went through the Quartermaster Psalm intro course, we taste, you know, there's the whole tasting component as well as an education. We're tasting wines. We taste a Gewürztraminer. And they say, you know, they start talking about, like, how do you determine a Gewürztraminer in a blind tasting? And they were bending over backwards to make this connection between the the root gewürz which in german is related to spice yeah right that you could smell spice in gewürztraminer and i was like you can't like i you guys are making or 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 i'm just like i have a dumb palate like i was really thinking you know like i'm an idiot like or i i don't i have a dumb palate i'm very insensitive and and yet like Strangely, I could detect other things that other people couldn't. So I was like, this is really weird. And like, I, like, am I just missing it? Like, am I just, you know, I was blaming myself because these are, M, M, you know, master psalms who are telling me this. And then recently, because of the advent of orange and amber wines, I've been drinking a lot of skin fermented Gewürz. And I was like, holy shit, they named this grape when this was probably the way that the wine was made. Like, yes. they probably originally named this grape when it was fermented on skins by everybody. Like nobody was thinking about removing the skins at that time. That's and right. that's where you get the spice. Cause that, then I was like, holy shit, there it is. Like now I, now I get it. There's Gewurz, you know? Um, and I, I, you know, say again, sorry. Very insightful. Oh, good. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, um, yeah. I just, uh, I, the, the, uh, this idea <laughs> of, of the shortness amount of time of what we consider traditional white wine 
I, I, you know, I really appreciate your historic perspective on so many of these things. And I, you know, I think if anybody can taste it, can we buy your Faux Chablis, the 2005? Is that available? Uh, yes, uh, at uh, uh, winesmithwines.com. There's only okay. a little bit. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you the, 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 the thing to do, I have nine bottles left of four vintages of Crucible, which is my Napa Valley answer to Poyak. Uh, uh-huh. And I have six vintages from 2001 to 2006 of Faux Chablis and a couple other interesting goodies, uh, Cabernet Franc with and without sulfites. Uh, so I've, I want to use those wines for, uh, to do tastings around the country now that the pandemic is, is gone. And I basically need 15 people to come up with 200 bucks a seat and I'll come out there and, and pour them all in. It's really extraordinary. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> all right. That's a, okay. That will be out in the world now. Gather um, your friends together. <laughs> all right. Great. Um, I guess, you know, I, I would, if you, if you don't mind, I know you make some dessert wines, some sweet wines, I should yes. say. I don't know if you, if you think that they should be dessert or if they should be consumed at all times of day. But um, this is something that, as far as I understand it, it's very difficult for somebody who considers themselves a natural winemaker to make unless you are going to have a high alcohol wine. Right. Because the only way to do it naturally is to fortify it uh, when it's in mid-fermentation and, and kill the fermentation with with uh, wine, with brandy. And and so then you're at like 19, 20% alcohol. Is there, not necessarily. Is, not necessarily. Okay, give, give me the lowdown. And also, I would love to know if there's a, sort of low intervention way to make a low alcohol uh sweet wine is that even possible without you know sterile filtration and that kind of stuff and cryogenic i would say i don't know of one Uh, i mean there's there's things you can do uh ken (laughs) fugelstein used to be really in favor of using carbon monoxide It works really okay. well, but you know, people freak out. So, uh, <laughs> right, right. There's, okay. there's other technologies like that. Okay. Uh, well, let's start it, like with, sparkling, sparkling. Let's, let's let's go through the history of sweet wine. <laughs> okay. So, uh, let's start with champagne. Oh, yeah. So what what did what did Don Perignon discover? What did he discover? The in-bottle fermentation? No. People have been doing that ever since there were bottles. Oh. Method ancien, petnat, essentially. Right, right. Good point. No, I have no idea. He discovered dosage. Dosage. Okay. So the finishing. He discovered that if you do an in-bottle fermentation and you disgorge and then you toss in a shit ton of sugar, this is not a sterile process, right? You're still plenty right. of yeast. But when you... You uh, seal it back up, it doesn't re-ferment because the CO2 suppresses the fermentation. That was his discovery. Uh, so so, so they made steering sec, acidity and balance it. They made sec, demi-sec, and do. So that's the dry, the half dry, and the sweet. Uh-huh. Uh, how many grams of sugar was in the dry wine? Ooh, good question. No, no idea. I'd be guessing. Well, so guess. 
Oh, I'd say like point less than 0.4 grams. The answer is 60 grams. <laughs> All right. This is like twice the sugar of Sutter Homewide's Infantile. <laughs> the dry one. And that, that was the sec. All right. Then the, then the demi-sec is, is 90 grams and do is 120 grams. I should know that. I should have known that. Yeah, This that, that was all the is only exactly. way. I mean, actually, this is the right answer to your question about how do I make, how do I make like 11% alcohol wine with sugar in it that won't blow up? Bubbles. Make champagne. Right. All right. So they introduced this to the court of Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, and they went apeshit. Yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> champagne is the worst wine in the world. Uh, right. You know, dry champagne is thin and bland and sour as hell. Right. But when you put a whole bunch of sugar in it, now what you've got is alcoholic 7-Up. <laughs> and uh, the whole court went nuts. And so that's what they made for 300 years. Then the British came along and said, well, yeah, now we'd, we'd like a little less sugar. What about 30 grams? And the French said, but it would taste terrible. Right, well, so. you pound sterling if you do. Very well. Take your English money and we'll make this awful wine. But we will not call it a beautiful French name like Demi-Sec or Du. We will call it, and it sounds really bad in French. And this is the only <laughs> English language designation in France for wine. Extra dry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then the British come back and they go, well, we'd like it drier still. Right. French, but only an animal would drink such wine. Very well. We would call it brute. <laughs> brute is an insult to the British for, for liking this horrible wine. Okay. So that between... You know, you named it Port and Sherry and Betritus Wines and then uh, and then Champagne. These are the only ways to make sweet wine, and Champagne was the only table wine that you could make sweet. Yeah. All right, along comes Hitler. Let me ask you a really quick question. Hmm. Why, when I start with a high bricks Champagne, like base, does it all ferment and blow up the bottle or blow off the cap or whatever? Like, why doesn't it work on that end? Why Why is it only after do, uh, disgorgement that I can add, that I can make the well, sugar? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, you you ferment to dryness the first time right. around. It's just the yeast can't grow back up when there's high CO2. Okay. Okay. Second time around. Got it. All right. Okay. So now Hitler comes along, scares the pants off of every politician and scientist in the free world. And if it hadn't been for him, we never would have split the atom. It was expensive. Mm. But, you know, we figured we had to do it. <coughs> and uh, so so we do that. And unfortunately, the Japanese got in the way. And you know what happened. So now we're looking at peacetime nukes. Mm -hmm. And so we had atomic piles. And... An inventive company called Nuclepore figured out that they could slide plastic sheets into these uh, nuclear reactors, the alpha particles, would etch little holes in them. And then if they put them in a bath of fluoric acid, <coughs> the, the uh, holes would enlarge uniformly. 
kind of like developing film. And uh, so you timed it. And when you got to a certain size, then you, you could make either an RO filter or ultra filter or a, a, a sterile filter for wine, depending on the size you wanted. And then you could also test that membrane with something called bubble pointing to see how much nitrogen pressure that filter would hold. You with me so far? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> switch gears a little bit here. What was the average alcohol of a California wine in 1960? 12%? 12 and a half? 18.5. Wait. Okay. <laughs> All right. California made nothing but port and sherry for 35 years after Prohibition. Got it. Everybody thinks it was all BV Primate Reserve. <laughs> Less than 5% of the wine made in California was table wine in 1960. Got it. What's the average alcohol of a California wine in 1970? 10 years later. Uh, well, so we're, we're looking at averages. Let's go down to 16. 11%. Whoa. Okay. And the reason is... Peter Sechel used the nucleopore technology to make Blue Nun leapfrog milk. <laughs> and nobody had ever had a modern off-dry white wine before. Right. They'd never had one. So by 1967, it was 50-50. And by the time we got to 1970, all the wine from California was Blue Nun knockoff. Gallo Chablis, <laughs> Almaden Rhine wine. Uh, uh, Weibel Green Hungarian, Wenny Gray Riesling, all 11% alcohol and around 2% sugar. Right. So now what are the French supposed to do? Everybody and his dog is making sweet wine. So when I first got in the industry in, in, uh, in 71, you could still find Demisec and Do. Now it's almost entirely it's about 75 percent brute and the rest is extra dry <coughs> right right so we're talking right. about 1 point or, or 15 grams and 30 grams where where does cold duck fit into that yeah well it, it, it's a it's not a method champenoise do, do you know what do you know where the word comes from no um in german when you you have German sausages, right? Let's say it's uh -huh. a balloonie. And it has these funky-looking round ends on it. Uh -huh. So you're, you're slicing, and then you have these leftover cold cuts. Uh, so the, the German for cold ends or leftovers is kalde ente. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, kalde ende. Ente, and it sounds like ente. Yeah, the German word. Right. Well, ente is the German word for duck. Right, right. So that's where it, it's Not basically ente. leftover wine. It's just saying it's a mishmash. We just threw it all together, put some sugar <laughs> in it and some bubbles, and it's our junk. Enjoy. <laughs> and many people did enjoy it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And and why not? You know, right. there isn't, we make fun of people that, that uh, like sweet wine, but... You got to read Tim Hanai's book, uh, Why You Like the Wines You Like. He defends mm. the uh, people that have, you know, the people that don't like dry, like Cabernets and stuff, is because they have a higher taste bud density. They're actually super tasters 
and they're, you know, they put cream in their coffee and a lot of sugar and they're just much more sensitive palates. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Wine. So getting back to how do you make sweet wine? I have two products. One of them is, uh, it's called any gorilla. <laughs> uh, and that comes from, uh, in the movie wine diamonds, which is about winemaking in the Midwest. You gotta watch this movie. It's really neat. Okay. But in the movie, he says, well, California winemaker told me one time that uh, any gorilla can make wine in California. And so <laughs> this stuff was just some leftovers that we have. Uh, you know, a Lodi 2019 cab that was kind of dry and veggie just didn't work out. And then I had this barrel, I guess I lost track of, of 2006 Meritage. And so I got a couple of tons of, of uh, Petite Syrah from Lake County, wonderful blueberries and stuff like that. We didn't even, didn't even ferment. We just took all of that and threw it together with a couple of drums of high proof alcohol and made the most delicious port you can imagine. It was uh 16, alcohol. And uh, it's just, it's one of my most popular ones, but it only took an hour to make it. Uh, <laughs> So I got that one, and then I got really interested in Petit Monsang when I was working with Patrick Ducourneau in Madiron. Uh, it's a funny situation. The, the Madiron is the uh, it's the red wine appellation, and superimposed on it is the white wine appellation, where you make uh, it's the same the same geographical territory, uh, but that's where you make Petit. Montsang Zert wine, and that's called Pecherinque de Vicbille. Nobody's ever heard of that, but many people know Jurançon, and that's Uh the same grape mix. So, Montsang is a crazy grape. It'll get to 32 and a half bricks without any shrivel or botrytis, and it still has a pH of 2.9 and 12 (laughs) grams per liter of acidity. It's nuts. Sounds like a a wine concentrate in a berry like yeah you just, kind of. you so stretch very it out popular make... in you know in ancient times because it would stick with some sugar <laughs> right right oh uh, yeah yeah there's a thing called deli units uh deli was a russian scientist in, in uh, 1905 published this formula you take the uh you take the residual sugar in percent plus the uh, alcohol by volume times 4.5. And if that's over 80, then you got a stable wine that won't ferment. So Mm. I really advocate this. If you want to make a natural wine and you don't want to use sulfites and you don't want to filter and any of that stuff, if you can get your deli units up there uh, above 80, then that's the easiest way to make unfiltered organic wine without sulfur all right okay <laughs> i love it anything else for th- on that one or those uh, yeah we could go on <laughs> <laughs> no we could um man this is uh i this is fantastic i i think i'll have to re-listen to this to learn everything that i just learned um <laughs> um where can where can people you know find out more about your wine and what you're doing winesmith.com is that the way to go who is clarksmith.com who, who is clarksmith.com okay 
That's and then the, there's winesmithwines.com. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's, you just click on shop from there. Oh, okay. You, who, is Cl- who is Clark Smith? Got it. Yeah. And there's a, there's a click for the books. There's a click for a, a, a postmodern winemaking. Uh, uh, it's, it's got, all, uh, you know, all things postmodern winemaking. And, and I want to say that the way I make wine isn't the only way to <clears throat> to go. I sort of am trying to make wines that are European in style. With I mm-hmm. rarely make a wine that's over 14% alcohol, uh, wines with a lot of mineral energy. and But that's not, there's 360 degrees of direction to go from modern winemaking and the realization that wine is not a chemical solution and so forth. So, uh, right. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I don't own the idea of, of, of what your version of postmodern winemaking would be. And in fact, when we do symposia, we all agree not to uh, convince each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're here to disagree. Let's defend that. I like that. Well, I, I mean, I, I think with honesty comes openness. And, you know, you when you you're just putting ideas into into the ring to stand on their own or be defeated by better ideas, then I think it leads to, you know, it leads to a, a more open approach to everything. You know, you're not you're not being dogmatic. You're not committing your ego to something. You're you're there to learn. You're there to, and it seems like that's been your approach in general and your and what you advocate. So I think that's really. Fantastic. I won't say there's no ego involved. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I do believe that winemakers, you know, they're not in it for the money. The only thing they have is their honor. And they yeah. have traded it away cheaply. And they yeah. ought to just get over themselves and try to re-engage with the general public who is onto their game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. I also, you, you being from Jersey reminds me of my friend who when people ask him if he's from jersey he's like yeah you got a problem with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's really how it is they <laughs> <laughs> uh, usually get to laugh <laughs> um well thank you so much clark this has been really i mean truly i really appreciate your time and i really appreciate you sharing so much of your expertise and just this entire you know career's worth of uh you know just what i mean probably just a fraction of what you <laughs> can can talk about from a career's worth of learning and experimenting and and becoming you know better versed in winemaking uh so i uh, it's just been a real treat thank you for sharing it well i appreciate your helping me spread it okay Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And I just want to leave you with this thought or these two thoughts. You know, we will keep learning and changing until the day we die. And there are much more important things to our relationships with each other than whether we agree about some ideas. So have fun out there. Enjoy. Keep learning and focus on the things that bring us together. <laughs>